0: We're glad you're here tonight. If you'd open your Bibles to Haggai, Haggai, we're going to be in chapter one. We're going to be looking tonight at verses seven to 15. And here's what those verses say tonight. We read in verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be "'Pleased with it and be glorified,' says the Lord. "'You look for much, but behold, it comes too little. "'When you bring it home, I blow it away. "'Why?' declares the Lord of hosts, "'because of my house, which lies desolate "'while each of you runs to his own house. "'Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, "'and the earth has withheld its produce. "'I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, "'on the grain, and on the new wine, on the oil.' On what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all labor of your hands, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God in this tremendous book of Haggai. There are great lessons to learn in it, and I pray we'd learn them. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, we read these words, "...do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world." The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's easy to become sidetracked in this world. It's easy to become lured away from the right and true focus on God and his word that we should have. That happened to Israel when they got back to the promised land from the Babylonian captivity, and it can happen to us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're set free. And then as time goes by, we can begin to drift away from that primary focus and key focus we ought to have. We can start off on fire. We can start off with an enthusiasm that is dedicated to the Lord and to the Word of God. But as time goes on, we can begin to lose the flame of that focus. And that is what had happened to Israel. They started off good. I mean, the nation was once again free to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The people came back. They were all revved up about rebuilding the temple and worshiping God. They had that initial surge that they wanted to obey the word of God and reestablish a good relationship with God. I mean, they're at the worship services, and there's that tug in the heart, and they had responded to it. But then threats and intimidations and enticements of the world came up against them and it caused them to back away from that commitment and they were lured away from the focus. So Haggai was raised up as a prophet by God to call the people back to a right focus. His job was to communicate the truth to the people that they needed to consider their spirituality and they needed to change it. And this wasn't something they needed to pray about. This was something they just needed to get going and reverse their direction they needed to get their focus back on the Lord. And what we see here is that God tells his people it's time to rebuild the temple so they can experience his blessings again, and they immediately obey. Now, when you look at verse 7, and it's repeated also in verse 5, Haggai challenges God's people to carefully think about what they're doing and where they're headed, and he identifies God in verse 7 and verse 5 as the Lord of hosts. That is significant. He uses that term for God multiple times in this book. We pointed that out last time. He wants people to understand this is the sovereign God who controls everything. He controls everything in heaven. This is the sovereign God who controls everything on earth. He controls angels, humans, the weather, He controls business. He controls success and failure. He controls blessings. He controls cursings. He controls bank accounts and inflation. He is the God who's in charge of everything in heaven and on earth, and that's what that term, Lord of hosts, means. And what Haggai is going to challenge God's people to do here is to think about, carefully think about, carefully consider what's going on in your world. And specifically, carefully think about what you haven't been doing. Because what you haven't been doing is right. It's not right. It was time for you to take immediate action to reboot and get going for the Lord. And when we live in this world, it is easy to fall into an attitude of apathy when it comes to God. I mean, it's easy to get focused on ourselves and our own lives, and we can tend to put God on the back burner rather than on the front of things. And when we do that, all of the efforts that we will have will only end up in vain. And that's the point Haggai wanted these people to realize. Now, there are four parts to this particular section of Scripture. First of all, God tells his people to get materials and rebuild the temple. That's what he says in verse 8. Go to the mountains, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple. You know, sometimes what God's people need to do is just get the work. I mean, sometimes what God's people need to do is just start to do what they can do and do what God's word says they're supposed to do. And when God calls people to do something, he'll certainly give them the means and the strength to do it as it has been well observed, God's callings are God's enablements and God wanted this temple rebuilt. So he gives his people basically three commands. Go up to the mountains, bring down, bring back the wood and rebuild the temple. That's your responsibility. That's what God tells them to do. Your responsibility is to go up there, get the materials, rebuild the temple. There's your assignment. Now, that's not a glamorous job when you think about it. I mean, you're taking an axe, I'm sure, perhaps saw, but more than likely an axe. And you're going to go up there and you're going to cut some wood, chop down a tree or two, and then you're going to haul it back to the area where the temple is. That's not a glamorous job, but that's their work assignment. And everyone in the nation Israel could do something. I mean, they may not be able to haul a massive log back, but they could certainly haul some timber back. And so God gave this assignment to everybody. The stone for the foundation was available from the quarry mine areas. They're still visible and visitable to this day. Stone was not the problem. There obviously was stone for the foundation that was already there, but it was the wood that was the problem. And to get the wood necessary for building the temple, they had to go up to the mountain areas where trees grew and where the wood was plentiful. And they themselves had the responsibility to get it. Now, according to Nehemiah 8.15, you may want to jot that in your notes there. Nehemiah 8.15, there were different trees that were located around that Jerusalem area. There were trees, and I base that on what is said in Nehemiah when They are told, go get these branches from these trees so you can build these booths at the festival of booze. And they were told to get branches from these kinds of trees. So we know that there were olive trees in the area. We know there were myrtle trees in the area. We know there were palm trees in the area. I mean, we know that there were other kinds of trees, perhaps oak trees. So certainly if they went up to the hill area, there are enough trees there. They could get enough lumber to come back down and complete the project. Wood was needed to make the beams of the temple. Wood was needed for the roof and the inside paneling. Now, when Solomon originally built the temple, he used cedar and cypress wood that came from Lebanon. I mean, he actually hired the best woodcutters at the time that were Sidonians, and Solomon hired them and they did the work. And about 16 years before Haggai gives them this challenge here, the people who had returned to Jerusalem because of the decree of Cyrus, they were able to purchase a great amount of cedar wood from Lebanon to be brought to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In fact, we read in Ezra when they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus the king. So 16 years earlier, the people came back to Jerusalem, apparently had enough money to contract somebody to haul that wood there. But now things are lean. These people don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to hire this stuff done anymore. I mean, they obviously don't have the money because of what he's describing as happening in the land. They're not setting flush with bank accounts that would enable them just to hire this done. So they couldn't pay to have it done. They're going to have to do it themselves. You know... I particularly know of a story of a minister that was in a church and the church was, uh, let me just say this, stingy and treated him and his family bad. It wasn't that they didn't have money to be able to care for him and his family. They just didn't do it. And as a result of that, God saw to it that that church became very, very lean. You know, they couldn't even hire somebody to mow the yard. It had to be a volunteer basis. You had to haul your own mower if you are going to mow the churchyard, because it had reached such a lean condition that they couldn't even hire it to be done. That's what you have happening here. I mean, earlier, 16 years ago, they had plenty of money. They bought the lumber, had the lumber hauled in there. They didn't have to do it. But now, now things are real lean and they're lean, as you'll see in just a minute, because God has made them lean. And so God says, you have the responsibility to go up there to the mountains and you have the responsibility to get that wood, bring it back here and build the temple. Now, we can assume that when that wood was first purchased 16 years ago, you have to wonder, well, what happened to that wood? I mean, I assume that they carefully thought through how much wood they were going to need when they placed their order. I mean, I'm sure that they thought that thing through. They took measurements of the temple and what they would need. And so you have to say, well, where did that wood go? I'm sure they carefully calculated that. Well, probably as the project stopped... When they stopped building the temple, probably the people said, hey, we could use that wood. We'll take some of it off your hands. We'll build our own houses with it. In other words, the wood that was supposed to be used to rebuild the temple was wood they were using now to work on their own homes. So God says to the people, here's your job. You go up there to those hills and mountains, bring down wood, rebuild this temple. He gets straight to the point. No need to pray about this. You don't need to ponder this. This is what you need to do. You need to get working. You need to get this done. And it's not pleasing in the sight of God to spend everything on self that belongs to the Lord. I don't care whether it's wood or whether it's money or whether it's time or whether it's talents or skills or gifts to just use those things for ourselves and not for the Lord is wrong and it will not bring the blessings of God. Which brings us to the second part. God gives his people reasons to rebuild the temple. Now, God gives his people three reasons why they ought to do it. Reason number one, that's what's going to please me. He says in verse eight, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it. You know, one of the prayers that we often challenge people to pray, and I personally pray, I prayed that this morning in my own devotions. So I'm not challenging you to do something I'm not willing to do. God, I want to end my life pleasing to you. I don't want to get to the end of life and not be pleasing to you. So guide me and lead me so that my life ends pleasing to you. And pleasing God takes on different dimensions at different situations. In this particular context, what this meant is that the people of God would start putting God as a high priority. They would start putting his place of worship as a high priority. And they would go up on the mountain and bring down the wood and rebuild the temple. That, God says, will please me if you do that. That will please me. God's people who want God's blessings need to carefully consider what is it that does please God. That obviously is a key to blessings. Well, I'll give you nine biblical things that God specifically says pleases him. These are things God says himself in his word. You can look them all up and look up the references because I've got them for you in your notes. Where God says these things please me. Faith in God pleases God. According to Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith in God pleases God. Speaking the truth of God's word pleases God. In fact, if you speak the truth of God's word to people, which we are admonished to do, oftentimes it's not going to please them. And that's brought out there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Not yielding to the flesh pleases God. I want you to remember that. Every time you say no to your flesh in a flesh situation, you please God. Not yielding to the flesh pleases God. Obeying the word of God pleases God. When you obey the instruction of the scripture, you can know I'm pleasing the Lord when I obey God. Then fifthly, children who obey their parents please God. Little children can please God when they obey their parents. They are actually in the process of pleasing the Lord. Sixthly, living life with a focus on God's future judgment pleases God. God says, it pleases me when my people realize there's a Bema Seat judgment coming. And it pleases me when my people think about that Bema Seat judgment in regard to how they're living their lives. Serving God pleases God and the particular Context where Paul says that in Galatians is in the context of pleasing God by proclaiming a non works gospel, non works grace gospel. Serving the Lord by doing that pleases the Lord. Then living a life in a way worthy of God pleases God. We'd call that a present life ambition. When you're concerned about your life that it's worthy of being a child of God, that pleases the Lord. And finally, praying, praying for political leaders and those in authority pleases God. Prayer pleases God. Now those are things that God says specifically, those things please me. So when God's people do those things, they can know I'm pleasing the Lord by doing these things. In this case, God says, here's the thing that'll please me. You go up on that mountain and you just get some wood. And you bring that wood back down, and you start rebuilding my temple, and that will please me. So there's reason number one do it, because it pleases me. Reason number two, it will glorify me. He says in verse 8, and be glorified. If God's people want the blessings of God, they must always make that their goal. I want to glorify God by what I'm doing. And obviously, when people obey God and please God, they do bring glory to God. They don't get glory themselves. They don't get a lot of glory from other people, but they sure get it from the Lord. In this case, by getting the wood and rebuilding the temple, it would bring God great glory. In fact, he would be able to come to this place and display his glory. If they got the temple rebuilt, he would actually be able to display his glory for the nation Israel. And if anyone will purpose to please God and glorify God, he will experience some amazing things. So, reason number one why you want to obey the Lord and get this wood and bring it back is it'll please me. Number two, it'll glorify me. And number three, it'll put an end to the lack of the prosperity that you presently have. Verse nine, you look for much, but behold, it comes too little. Don't ever forget this principle. If we neglect God... In any area, we're only going to hurt ourselves. And you may think by neglecting God, you're going to get ahead. You aren't. If we neglect God, we're not going to get ahead in life. And God describes specific things. Remember, this is the Lord of hosts. He uses that proper noun for himself because he wants to be identified as I'm the sovereign God who controls everything in heaven and on earth. I have all power. I control everything on heaven, and I control everything on earth. And he wants his people to be challenged to put him first in life. And if they do that, then what will happen is six negative actions or realities will go away that they've been experiencing because they weren't putting God first in life. Negative action number one, they look for much, but they had little. Verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes little. You can work hard, and you can work long, and have nothing to show for it. Or, you can work a little, keep the Lord first, and have a lot to show for it. God says, you've never been able to receive what you expected. You expected to have more, but you're always coming up short. And the reason you're always coming up short, I'm causing it. I like what one commentator said. One commentator said, when God is neglected, nothing works right. Oh, you may accomplish a little, but it will not satisfy and you won't accomplish much. So... The first negative reality is you look for much, you have little. Secondly, what they are able to bring home just blows away. He says in verse 9, when you bring it home, I blow it away. I think that probably is a literal reference to the grain wasn't really good grain that was growing, it lacked substance, and you know. When they would take that to those areas where they would store the grain and the chaff would blow away, I think some of the grain literally was actually blowing away just because it was really not the best kind of grain. God says, that's what I'll do. Neglect me, I'll blow your prosperity away. Neglect me and you may have some, but you won't have much. You know, someone said this. Those who plan to give God... Something once they have enough for themselves, will never have enough for themselves. Because they should be giving God what he deserves right up front. So those who live by a code, well, when I really hit it, I'll give God what he deserves. They're never going to hit what they think they're going to hit. The third action is you care more about your house than God's house. That's what he says in verse 9. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. God says, you've been so consumed with your house, you've forgotten about my house. You've been so consumed with your lives, so consumed with your world, that you've forgotten about mine. In fact, we've known of people that won't even leave their house to go to church. I mean, they won't even get in a beautiful car, go out of a beautiful place where they live to go to church. I mean, it's just like they're more concerned about staying in their house than they are going to God's house. God isn't going to bless that. The fourth action is, I've withheld moisture. He says in verse 7, therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I mean, in the dry season, dew was critical for growth of crops. God said, I stopped it. From all parts of the land. He'll mention the places in just a minute where he stopped this dew from coming. God said, I control that moisture that's coming into an area, and I just stopped it. I shut it down. And fifthly, I've withheld produce. God says, I'm the one that hasn't permitted your produce to thrive. I'm the one who's been responsible for seeing to it that you're not succeeding. And sixthly, I've caused a drought on many things. Verse 11, I called for a drought on the land. Listen, don't kid yourself. God is the Lord of hosts who can pronounce a drought on everything his people have and everything his people do. He's not a God to be mocked. And I want you to see this. I want you to see this. The God of the Bible can remove everything refreshing from his people. Everything refreshing from his people. And it was God who says, I'm the one who did it. Do you see that? clearly see that from the scriptures. I called for a drought on the land because when things seem to go bad, people want to blame Satan. Things are bad, boy. Satan's really attacking me. No, no, it's not the issue here. You're not being attacked by Satan. Satan's not doing this. You're doing this to yourself. Why? Well, we're not putting God first. And when you don't put God first, God says, I allow a lot of stuff to happen, a lot of negative things to hit. And one of the things I did is I called for a major drought. This isn't an attack of Satan. This is a judgment of God. He said, first of all, I caused a drought on the land your property was suffering. Secondly, I caused a drought on the mountains. Your peak places were suffering. Thirdly, I caused a drought on the grain. Your businesses were suffering. I caused a drought on your new wine. Your drink was suffering. I caused a drought on your oil. Now, you use oil for cooking and for fuel and for medicine and for lotion. I caused it. I caused a drought on ground crops, things that you use for food. Listen, when you go into a grocery store and the shelves are empty and you see the food isn't there, you can start to say, oh boy, Satan's, this isn't from Satan. This is from God. It's coming from God against the people who haven't put him first at all. Then he said, I caused a drought on men, on men. I caused a drought on cattle. I caused a drought on labor, their work ethics, the labor of their hands. It didn't produce anything. God's People need to very carefully consider, very carefully consider their ways because their life, their business, and their spirituality is on the line. Success and happiness of a nation, success and happiness of a state or of an individual depends on the type of relationship they have with the Lord. And if anyone neglects God, especially his own people, if they neglect God in their lives, they will discover my life is a long, lonely drought. Which brings us to the third part, the leaders of the people listen to Haggai and obey God. Verse 12 said, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Listen, leadership was responsible for basically shutting the work down in the first place. And they led the people into this drought. But thank the Lord that the leadership had the little bulbs go on in their brains at this point, And they decided to lead the people back into a way that would bring the blessings of God. And frankly, this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. You talk about positive response. Rarely do leaders and people immediately respond like this. You talk about immediate revival. You talk about immediate reformation. This was instantaneous. You're talking about an immediate change of heart and mind and obedience that's very rare. And what this tells us, ladies and gentlemen, and keep in mind at this point, we've had at least a 13 or 14 year gap of time where these people haven't been doing anything but thinking of themselves. And now they say, hey, wait a minute. We need to get refocused here which tells us it's possible to start over. It's possible to regroup. It's possible to actually get the blessings of God again. Zerubbabel was the governor. Joshua was the high priest. And all the people heard what Haggai said about what God wanted them to do, and the text says they obeyed. It started with the leadership. Zerubbabel and Joshua realized, you know what? We're the two highest leaders of this nation. We need to get back on track and do what's right before God, and God will bless us again. And the people actually listened to the message of Haggai. They obeyed it. Now, prophets were not often treated like that. It's a rare moment. Most of the time, the leaders hated the prophets because they loved the power and the politics. You know how it works. I mean, most of the time, people in high positions love their own sin more than the truth of the word of God. They don't want to be confronted with that. So as a result of that, they don't change. They just get mad at the person who's telling them the truth. Prophets were ridiculed and mocked and jailed and punished and even killed. We saw that in the case of the book of Jeremiah. So it's very rare to find this kind of response to the word of God. But the people listened to the word of God. And the text says it was the words of Haggai the prophet. That's what you read in verse 12. When God's word is accurately communicated by a man of God, it is in fact the inspired word of God. And the people heard it and they obeyed it. They realized this is what God wants us to do. And they reverenced God. It had been a lot of years. Since they had this fear of the Lord, but they reverence God. And they took the word of God seriously again. They regrouped, they refocused. And as you'll see in the second chapter, God's going to say from this day on, I'm going to bless you. Which brings us to the fourth part. Haggai tells the people God's with them. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. God responded to his people immediately. The moment his people said, you know what, I'm getting off track here. We need to get back on track and put the Lord first in our lives. God was right there immediately to respond. Haggai was a messenger of God. He communicated the word of God. In fact, two times in this book, Haggai communicates the fact that God is with them. He had communicated the word of God, the people had responded to it, they got away from their apathy, they started to take the word of God seriously again, and Haggai says, I want you to know God is with you. And what God did is he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, that's what verse 14 says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. I mean, God literally saw these people were serious about wanting to obey his word, so he started stirring their spirit again. They took this interest in God and rebuilding the house. Man, I'm telling you, we need this right now in this country, and we need this right now in our own lives. We need God to stir up leaders of this nation In this country, so that they will once again take the Word of God seriously, because they're making mockery of it. But don't let that happen to us as the people of God, because that's what happened to them. They were making mockery of the Word of God. I mean, their lives were not even interested in what the Word of God said until here. And the construction is dated in verse 15. The construction began just 23 days. 23 days after Haggai proclaimed his first message. He preached his first message on the first day of the sixth month, and construction began on the 24th day of the sixth month, 23 days later. 23 days, these people turned it around. Now they're on a path of the blessings of God. And they responded to the word, and they're going to flourish I want to leave us tonight with six applications from this text we've gone through. First of all, shortchange God, you'll shortchange yourself. Let's understand that point. You can choose the shortchange God, that's your choice. I mean, Put God in the back burner and, you know, fit him in wherever you think you can. But just realize this, when you shortchange the Lord, you're shortchanging yourself. Secondly, God's work requires people working and doing what they can. God didn't expect people to do what they couldn't do. He expected them to do what they could do. Thirdly, some jobs in God's work are not glamorous, but they're all important. At that point of time, the work that they needed to do was just go get some wood. That's not a glamorous job, but that was the job they needed to do. Fourthly, pleasing God means different things at different times. We've given you a list of specific things that please the Lord, and they are in different settings. But when you do what the Word of God says in different settings, you do please the Lord. Fifthly, whenever one obeys God, God is with them. And sixthly, you can start over again and be blessed of God, even after years of having lost your focus. That's what happened to the nation Israel. That's what happened in this book of Haggai. Well, our time is gone. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.